You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers. If you have a great idea or something that gets people excited, there's no trouble raising the money. Mm-hmm. And if you can't raise the money, you better think about whether it's such a good idea. Right. Because these people, that's all they do is look at opportunity. If they see opportunity, they'll jump in and be your partner. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of 2020. I'm Siobhan Cronin here as always with Benny Goodman and Corey Peza. How's it going, guys? It's going great. I'm amazed at how fast you went into that from the last one. That's really good. Keep it going. I Momentum. am so ready. Inertia. So ready. <laughs> and so excited to have back again John Garabedian of the Open House Party of V66 of so many other projects. Um, you know, he's back to just share more from, knowledge from with the us. picture of Vanilla Ice. <laughs> yeah, we talk about that in this episode, but always such a great guy to talk to, such a fun, uplifting, positive guy with a lot of business knowledge. So definitely check out their, our previous episode. Stay tuned for this one. Don't forget to go to 2020-d.com and like and subscribe. Don't forget Corey's part of this. I think that uh, Siobhan handled that very nicely. But I th- <laughs> We're trying to keep it short, tight, sweet. Keep it you tight. <laughs> 2020-d.com. Well, Symphony's our band. Welcome back to another episode of 2020. My name is Corey Peza here, as always, with Siobhan Cronin and Benny Goodman. How are you guys doing? Good. Cheers, Cheers. guys. Cheers. What are you cheersing with, Ben? Hopefully not alcohol, because that would scare me. Simply lemonade. Ah, yes. (laughs) The most important thing to ever look at um, when you look for juices, everybody is not from concentrate. I will agree with that. Um, But for everyone listening and watching that doesn't care about juices... um, Welcome back to part two with our friend John Garabedian, uh, the the one and only, the founder of the Open House Party, the legendary. He's on Party Live Line now. Uh, you can check out his book, Harmony of Parts. Uh, just absolutely full of of wisdom and stories of, of music and history bullshit. and bullshit too. <laughs> well, it's important to be able to Aren't weave we that all? in there. <laughs> If you can do it, you know, subtly enough, it, it doesn't really matter. Um, in the <laughs> obviously, this is his fourth time, fourth episode with us. The first uh, first two were from about almost a year ago now. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, you were one of our early guests, yeah. John. You you got to wow. see us before we had a, some upgraded technology. Yeah, and this is I'm not uh, a virgin now. Yeah, I don't think we've upgraded too much. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe it was far enough in. We were already. We set. certainly haven't uh, increased our skills at all. We, no we, more sponsors. Pretty, ben yeah. is interrupting slightly less than he usually does. It's true. So he we... took. He tried to take some of your advice from our previous episodes. But either way, part two of our 2021 talk, and uh, in the previous episode, uh, we got we dove into a few things. We talked about breaking Aerosmith, which 
is, you know, a little big band out of Boston um, and a few other great stories, building radio stations, building TV stations. We talked about some of the challenges uh, that John has faced and, and, you know, really like that seem insurmountable. And then to be able to continue on uh, after, after you, you throw out some big numbers. <laughs> I don't know if they were at, like actual literal numbers, but you said that you, you basically, you ate some shit on some, some decisions. Yeah. And millions still, of dollars. Yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy. So what I definitely want to get else, into, What else am I going to do with it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you have such a great yeah. attitude though. That's one thing I love about you is that you tell all these, you have a positive attitude about everything that you've done in your life. And that's hard to come by really. Yeah. I, I, and you guys will probably agree. You know, it's it's totally. really great to hear how you're no still more twenty four hour music television. No more, but we pay all the investors back a hundred and fifty six percent. Yeah, right. yes. they were very happy. <laughs> that's no all, more that's music videos, good. but we, you get your money back, and we're going to give you fifty six percent more. Well, that's what they invested for. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put the money up. It's important. kind of an interesting thing. We. Uh, um, just witnessed uh, the you know, launching of the billionaires into space and people are critical of the fact that all that money could have been spent feeding hungry people. And, you know, you go, well, do we advance science or is this really just some billionaires having fun? And it's an interesting philosophical question. Where do you stand on it? I don't have an opinion on it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'd have to think about it a lot. <clears throat> you know, there's uh, Elon Musk is convinced that we need a place to go besides Earth because if something happens to this planet, uh, we're done. And I'm not sure you can turn that around. I mean, who's going to go to Mars? Who's going to be the first person <laughs> on Mars who's never coming back? Yeah. It's got to be a matter of perspective um, when you think about that level of wealth being used for something that's not directly benefiting immediately 99% of the world, even though you could, it could be argued, well, the technology that's being developed and the research that's being done could potentially be revolutionary towards other things, power, um, you know, the, the Starlink thing he's doing with internet, you know, worldwide internet. So, <laughs> I don't know how we got it. Interesting world we live in, nonetheless. <laughs> People on, going why, to space. Could, why couldn't they go? But here's here's the thing: is I think you used the right term when you said perspective, because I feel like you know it's more of like a Ray Kurzweil perspective for me. I feel like we should just back up our essence to a computer and then send it into space. So Elon Musk is not wrong. We just our bodies are limiting us. Have we ever tried sending just an eight and a half by eleven paper with a backing and some maybe some bubble wrap as opposed to sending a frame? It's like three stamps versus nineteen dollars. It's the same thing. Just send your essence, not even your brain, just the zeros and ones that make up who you are and the DNA of your being. It can be mapped, and then just put that into space. I think he's onto something. <laughs> Okay. Should send an email. Well, uh, maybe back, back to what what I originally wanted to get into is back know, to the talk, matter at hand. We talked about some of the struggles of building a successful business, but you know, even with those struggles, you did build very successful businesses. And uh, what I want to hear is from your the conception of your idea. And you, you so you know, for example, when you look at um, you know open house party, and you basically said like, "There's a need for this." The, the, I know why these weekend show, like, I know why radio sucks. I'm going to fix it. 
So you put that together, which is coming up with an idea, which in and of itself is incredibly difficult. And, and But then you grew it into something so huge and with such a huge cultural impact. What point in that um, trajectory did you first have to maybe, I guess you'd have to start giving away your idea to other people or relying on people to support something that got, I guess, bigger than yourself would be one way to put it. And how did you feel about that? I was trying to get a radio network, one of the existing networks, which was ABC Radio, which was the largest network at the time, or Westwood One, to represent me. And they couldn't figure out what it was, and they were in the battle over who was going to end up with Casey Kasem, which was the big show at the time. And I said, screw this, I'll start my own network. What's, what's involved? You okay. have to get the show distributed, which means you buy some satellite t- time. And uh, I already had the product. And I'll get somebody who will call the radio stations and sell it to them. And so I started another company called Super Radio. But when I sat down with my very primitive Robin computer, which back in 1987 was all it was, it was IBM had uh, just come out with the the PC. And uh, I did a spreadsheet. And I it was going to cost a million dollars to get this thing to the point where you have more money, more cash coming in than cash going out. Because first you have to get enough stations to be able to get a decent price for your advertising. Mm -hmm. Then you have to go out to the ad agencies and sell the advertising. Then, and all this takes time. Then a couple months later, you have to run the ads. And then at the end of that month, you have to build them. And then a couple months later, they finally pay you. So there's this backlog it just takes time to build the audience build the stations build an audience uh, get the advertisers run the ads collect the money and then wow now we have money coming in and that was a million bucks and so i got partners to start a company called super radio which was um everybody put up money we i had seven or eight investors and Mm -hmm. uh but i still had control of the company because i was the general partner and yeah, I had to make all the decisions. So yeah, that just makes you more impressive. Then I guess my <laughs> my uh, point I, I was trying to get at is like, so there was no point where you um, felt that what you had built was getting you know beyond where you had to delegate certain things off that maybe you were handling, um, or was it just th- throughout the entire process? you were always signing off on, you know, these things you, you said you brought in partners. Was that just financial or did you have to find people that were aligned with what you were trying to do? Well, I went back to the same people who invested in my TV station. We're all very happy. And yeah. they all said, yeah, we'll step up. And then once it got going, then we would hire a staff. You had to, I had to have a producer. We had to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on and on and on. You had people to answer the phones, you know, phone. Okay. Uh, so this we, is something that you've, you've said over and over. You, you've started all these things from the ground up. How do you feel like you've been able to organize knowing that you need all this infrastructure, that you, knowing that this is the team I need, these are the people I need, this is what I need to succeed? Because it sounds to me like there's a process, to like a method to your mayhem, if you will, because you've done a lot of things and it just sounds to me like you're very good at building things from nothing into something. Where do you find the alignment between all the like V sixty six and you know b- having a radio station and then also having an empire with you know the open house party where you're now on satellites? How, how, what's what's the same thing that you you see that uh, amongst those things? It's when I was a kid, I figured out the way to solve a problem 
is break it down into its simplest form. So if you're starting a uh, radio show, you need a studio, you need a talent, which I was the talent. Um, so I had to build a studio, which I, where am I going to put it? So I put it in my house. Um, I need a way to get this, the, the uh, signal out to stations, the show out to stations. With time, the only way to do it was satellite. <clears throat> so I found a satellite company that that's what they did. We, we contracted with them. And they gave us the space segment. We built a satellite uplink in my backyard um, with a big dish. Um, so that took care of that. And then we had to get someone to call the stations to get them lined up to take the show. We were already on the air in Boston on the number one station in the city. So that was nice credibility. Um, and we had great ratings, by the way. We had the highest ratings on the station, even though we were coming from a house in the suburbs. And so that was easy. And then I found someone who could call stations and talk to them. And once I got him and got him a little one of these rent an office places in Boston where he could go every day and make his phone calls and have someone answer the phone and so forth. Um, and then we had to sell the advertising. So I found a company in New York that had also just started up uh, with some guys who had some real credibility and knew them, what they were doing. And we made a contract with them for a split. They kept 20% of the uh, of the ad revenue. We got 80, but they'd go out and sell. They'd do the billing. They'd do all the accounting for the income and send us a report every month. And they were great. And it worked out very well. So let me ask you this. Do you see this in a very strategic, like 30,000 foot level? Or because the way you just described, it sounds like it's a very linear method. Okay, I need to get a studio. Once we get the studio, clearly we just needed money for this. And, I mean, that's very methodical. But for, for me, like, I feel like you also must have had some sort of like, again, you know, being a pilot, having a 30,000 foot view going, well, holistically, this is what we want. And you've already worked through the problem so that when you've got to the end of it, you, you're where you want to be. Because yeah. it sounds to me like you've been very methodical, but it's not just a linear method where you go, oh, I need this, then I need this, I need this. You have a strategic plan from the very beginning where you know that this is where you're hoping to end up. Yeah, well, I just at the beginning, I went, okay, what do I need to get this done? A, B, C, D, E. So I just did each one. And I was very fortunate that the decisions I made on the partners that I signed up, the people who sold the ad revenue, the guy who cleared the stations, blah, 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 the producer, they were all good people. Uh, they were, you know, self-starters. They weren't, you know, sleazy. I mean, yeah. I ended up with great people and that's, Great people are the answer to almost any any project. If you have great people, the job will get done. Let me ask you this, John. In the earlier episode, we were we were talking about musicians and what's your motivating factor? Do you want to be famous? Do you want to make great music? What has been your primary motivation over the course of your career? Like, what is it that drives you? Is it success? Is it a certain artistic goal that you want to achieve in 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 your stations? Like, what what is it that drives you and what you do? My mother, who used to smoke, and she had one of these. Yes, dear. <laughs> oh, Johnny and his projects. I always loved projects. I like having an idea. And that was like, people like puzzles. Well, I don't like puzzles. I like projects. I like building things, putting the elements together, you know, building the thing up and going, voila, look at that. Isn't this great? And it was like that with everything, building the radio station. All, even all my girlfriends years. have been like that, John. Your girlfriends? They've all been, pro they've all been projects. Now I'm the project, John. That's actually the key to Benny, defining stay, successful. You, you want to turn your game down because you're very loud. Sorry. 
I won't That's lean okay. into the microphone. How's that? Okay. There's actually, there's actually, there's actually a limit yes, on this. Yes, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'm sorry. I'm wearing the earpieces. And it's, oh, there we go. Yeah, thank you. And Corey, I can hardly hear. But Oh, well. <laughs> sorry about that. Is that much more reasonable? So, Benny, what was, what was your question? I think we were on Siobhan. She oh, was, I was she just was asking, asking yeah. what motivates oh. you, but that no, but that's yeah. that's oh. amazing. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You're you love projects. projects I mean, yeah. and I think it's it's clear through all of the stories you've told yeah. that that's what you're yeah. very good at doing. And something lights me up, I go for it. You know. So let me ask you another thing you referenced in our earlier episode was you know your first idea of the radio station of like oh well if I want to do it this way the only solution is I have to own the station and then you found someone to help you finance it. What was that initial pitch like? I'm just curious, like. You know, because that seems like a, a point where it really is going from an idea into like the execution stage, right? So I'm I'm interested to hear how how did you propose that? How did you find someone that might have been interested in financing it, or how did you what all did you have to have set up in order to make that well, proposal? Well, that was I was just a kid. I was 22 years old, working in Albany, New York, having a good time. I made a lot of friends up there. I, you know. But um, I had to get back to Boston. So I reached out to the Boston Chamber of Commerce and asked them about, if, you know, how we could get a partner or something and to build this thing. I didn't know what I was doing, but they were very helpful. And they hooked me up to um, the Framingham Chamber of Commerce. And uh, so I went in and met with the guy at the Framingham Chamber of Commerce and the president of the local bank. And they said, who do we know who's like kind of eccentric and would put money into something like this? And they came up with the name of this guy named Norm Farley. And Norm Farley had just bought uh, a, a, an old nightclub in Framingham that back in the uh, 40s and early 50s was uh, the home of a national radio broadcast by a, a singer named Vaughn Monroe. And they had the camel, camel cigarettes sponsored it. And it was, they did this big one hour show with a big band on Friday nights. And he bought the, the but the place was run down and lost business. So he bought it and it came with 28 acres of land. Four years after he bought it, he was approached by this company in Connecticut that had a chain of department stores like Target is now called Caldor. And they wanted to buy 10 acres of this land to build a new Caldor in this area. And he sold it to them for $600,000. He bought the restaurant for 250. So he made the money. So he had money. Plus he had another business. So I went to him and he's this heavy set guy and he's puffed on cigars. And he said, well, I'm 61. And this is after he said, yeah, I might be interested. Then he said, uh, I'm 61 years old. No Farley man has ever lived past 62. Well, he's heavy, smokes cigars. And it's like, of course not. But he said, my son might be interested. So he had a son who was like 37, 38 years old, Norm Jr. And uh, so he introduced me to Norm Jr. Norm Jr. and I get along. And so Norm Jr. became my partner. And the way the deal worked out was I owned one third and he took two thirds because he's the golden rule. The guy with the gold makes the rules. <laughs> and then, of course, along came... Um, the second applicant, which is backed by these very wealthy people, the owner of General Cinema Corporation, 
these two brothers who started a company called Zare, which is now TJX, which owns Marshalls and you know a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff. And uh, so he was scared. He said, I don't have that kind of money. He said, I've got to bow out. So fortunately, um, my brother-in-law had introduced me to his lawyer. He said, you're going to need a lawyer, so talk to this guy. And this guy was a character. So he came up with a plan where he put money in. My dad put money in, which he said was the money he was going to spend to put me through college, but I quit. And wouldn't have to, so he had the money left over. <laughs> and my brother-in-law, they put the money in. And uh, so we got the money to do it, and on we went. Does that answer your question? How did you yeah. get the money? That's how we got yeah. the money for the radio station. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's interesting. You know, the, I feel like things have changed now where it's so many people are asking for so many things. And back in the day, it sounds like you could go somewhere and somebody knew somebody and they would connect you to someone that they thought might be interested in a project. And now it seems like so much harder. I don't know how anyone well, figures out how to do these large scale projects. Very important because one thing I'm hearing over and over and Benny can hardly hear you, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's swinging the other way. It's like, it's one or the other. How's that? It's okay. perfect. Perfect. I, I was calling it manifestation because, you know, that's that's just, you know, what Shannon Larkin's told me is occultism. But really, John has just very linearly and he, he's focused on something. And this is very admirable. And I, and I, I have to say that I, I totally love this about John. And it's it's very clear you know, obviously being able to see all the things you've done and even going and researching you on the Internet is that you um, see things, you understand them, you break them down in parts, which like literally the name of your book is The Harmony of Parts. It's understanding how to break things down in parts and how do they work together. And you are able to envision these large, grandiose things that a lot of people may think are intangible. And you're just like, this is another day at work. Yeah. And then when it's all over, in the case of V66, you're like, well... Uh, there's no more TV station, but I made people money. And that's how you look at it, you know, shutting down a project. Because for you, it just seems to me like the high is coming up with the idea and seeing it at such a grand level. Like almost like a producer hears a whole song. I feel like you see a whole project in your mind. And it's just clear all the different equations you have to get there if you're willing to put in the time. True. But determination is also the key to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'm very determined. <clears throat> for instance, People always were amazed that I always get parking spaces right next to the door at a <laughs> restaurant. or uh, And a friend of mine once called, he said, you've got the Armenian parking god. Well, I, it's because I'm determined. I, I won't just take a space, you know, a mile away. I'll drive in. I'll look for people who are walking out of the place. I'll go, oh, they're going to their car. And I'll just sit there. So, you know, when you get determined to do something. When it came to build the TV station, we had to raise $10 million. Well, where do you get $10 million? And this is 30 years ago. Well, 1984. Right. So what, more than $10 million. Almost 50 years terms. ago. Yeah. yeah. It's like $30, $40 million. So yeah. where do you get it? You're not going to go in your pocket. Um, fortunately, I um, I had a friend. Well, Arnie Ginsberg became who I wanted to get involved because he really is a smart guy. And he knew a lot of things that and ways to get things done. Um, and he introduced me to a guy named Kenny O'Keefe. Uh, Kenny at the time was working for uh, Pyramid Broadcasting, which owned Kiss 108 in Boston and a bunch of stations, Pittsburgh, Rochester, Buffalo. <clears throat> and uh, he had come out of broadcast lending at the State Street Bank. And he was a really smart guy and a really nice guy. And so he said, well, I've got a buddy who just raised 
money to build $8 million to build a TV station in New Orleans. He said, I'll ask him to send us a copy of the prospectus. So he did. And it was money raised by a company in New York called Kidder Peabody. So we called Kidder Peabody. We said, we'd like to come down. We have a project here. We want to see if we can get you interested in, in underwriting it. And so we went to New York and uh, Kenny came with us. And Kenny, by the way, ended up as president of Clear Channel, which you're an yeah. iHeart. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's just a brilliant guy um, and a nice guy. And he helped us out. He came down with us and we, we talked to them and they got interested and they said, okay, we're going to do it. Not in one meeting. We had to go back and back and back and, and so forth. Um, but they raised the money. But and I used to think back then, I thought, you know, if you have a great idea or something that gets people excited, there's no trouble raising the money. Mm-hmm. And if you can't raise the money, you better think about whether it's such a good idea. Right. Because these people, that's all they do is look at opportunity. If they see opportunity, they'll jump in and be your partner. It, seem, it seems like asking questions is a big part of how you get from step to step. Like, you know, whether it's how do I build a tower or who do I need to talk to? Like, yes, I think that's that's what's jumping out to me most of all, because um, it's I mean, listen, your success is fascinating because so many people want it and they, it's just not always clear cut, it seems. But it seems like you have a pretty fundamental way of navigating things. And it comes from that curiosity and that the determination you talked about. And, and it seems like just not taking no and just like, oh, how do I get this? And that, well, I think it's, that's, it's uh, clear the air. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. keep it simple. If you keep simple what you're doing, it becomes manageable. If it's like, oh, well, this is over here. I don't know how to do that. And oh, I've got to do this. And you get distracted. <laughs> You never get anything done. Yeah, this I think this is because, you know, thinking back to you saying that you love projects, it's something that I've noticed with other people like my, you know, my husband, for example, someone who loves to reverse engineer stuff. And like, for me, I get overwhelmed by something. I'm like, oh, no, this is too many buttons is too complicated. And I just like quit. You know, I'm like, I can't. That's the challenge, though. He loves the challenge. Right, exactly. (laughs) And so he loves like sitting and simplifying and taking it apart, you know, and I feel like that skill is transferable in so many ways, you know, whether it's to something technological or business or whatever, you know, it's, it's knowing how to, you know, deduce what are the problems that I have to solve here? And how am I going to do it the quickest and most simple way? Yep, that's right. So that's amazing. John, you seem to be able to really pick out people that are going to have lasting careers and like, no, like you've talked to me so emphatically about um, stars, you know, that have become monumental successes after, you know, because we've known each other for a while. You'll, you like point at stars and by stars, I mean like people with successful singles or whatever, or people you think are going to be successful. Like Babe Ruth used to point at home runs, except that was more than just one time. It was like always. Do you think that your personal determination is diametric to the people that you like give a lot of respect to? Like, do you think you see that tenacity in people? And that's one of the things that tips you off that, you know, Sean Mendez is going to have a career or Ed Sheeran. Because I remember like when Ed Sheeran, you know, I, he was big, but like, the way that you used to talk about him like a long time ago, which is like, he's going to be something. He's going to have a big career, this guy. And then like, he's literally beating every record in the history of man touring, which you're saying selling tickets is the most important thing in music. And then Ed Sheeran doesn't even have a band. So he's essentially a DJ. He keeps all the money. (laughs) No band to split it up with. (laughs) Smart. So what's your question, Ben? My question yeah. is, do you think you see that when you call out these stars ahead of time, 
Do you see the determination in them like you like you feel in yourself? Is there is there a tenacity that you saw in Bruno Mars? Is there a tenacity? Because oh, yeah. if you go and look, because if you, I don't. Someone did this to me on a podcast, and I actually thought it was kind of cool, but also obnoxious. Where they went through a bunch of my Instagram pictures, where I was trying to showboat with famous people, and then made me say stuff. But if you go through the harmony of parts, there's like a photo section, which is what I look at first because I'm a guitar player, and you, you have don't read the books. You, that's right, <laughs> Bruno Mars, and you know you have Mariah Carey. And you do have the, you know, you have the Bee Gees and Justin Bieber and Christina Aguilera and, 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 you know, Selena Gomez and Rihanna and Kanye West. And it just goes on. Like, do you think that you like when they walk in, do you say that guy, that girl, they have it because you were with Adam Levine when he looked like a little kid. You're with Justin yeah. Timberlake when he like literally definitely couldn't drink. Well, he was 15 when he first came here. Oh, Jesus. But, no, there was no way predicting Justin Timberlake in that environment because he was part of a five-person boy band uh, manipulated by Lou Pearlman. Oh, my God. Who was their manager. There's a great book, by the way, by the late Lou Pearlman called Boys, Bands, and Billions or something, and it's, it tells the story of how he put the whole thing together. Basically, he, he used to lease airplanes, and he used to lease them to new kids on the block. He said, how do these kids make the money to pay me this? And so that that was the formula. Wow! Wow! Joey McIntyre. But <laughs> to to answer your question more directly, you can't tell when you first met somebody. Rihanna was like sixteen or seventeen when she first came in here, um, and she was young. But she, you know, she was very nice. But the next time she came back, she had some swagger, and you could tell she was going to be something because she's really smart, and she's really talented, and. She, she's got good people behind her. <clears throat> um, you know, Ed Sheeran, um, what can I say? He's an incredible songwriter. He's a, 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 a minstrel, um, an entertainer. Um, you know, he, he goes out on the stage in front of 20,000 people or 50,000 people by himself and has them spellbound for two hours. How do you do that? That's yeah, determination. That's, that's confidence. Two turntables and a microphone. Yeah. That's how you do it. And drugs. Lots of drugs. I don't Ask think David Guetta. Ask David Guetta. He does it all all the time. He does four well, hours. It has sets. to be more than that. I mean, there has to be some well, sort yeah, of lots energy of lights, that you're transferring. Lasers. Yeah. You know, but it's not necessarily a formula. There's got to be some CO2 more than canisters. <laughs> you're living in Miami. You know this. Go to the clubs there. That's what it is. It's the lights, it's the lasers. CO2. That's true, but some of that is distraction. You know, people that can really hold a captive audience where they're actually engaged in the music is, is another thing. That's right. You know? And and real comes through. People can yeah. tell real and pl not plastic. I mean, Miami Beach, give me a break. It's like <laughs> they used to say about Hollywood. Behind all that phony tinsel, there's real tinsel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great episode title. By the yeah. Oh, God, Miami <laughs> Beach is so yeah. fake. There's it really is. No, take it from someone that lives there. It's you know, it's it provides a lot of entertainment for me. It's just it's it's amazing how yeah, <laughs> you never know what's going to happen there. Well, you know, one thing you told me, and this is and this is uh, again one of the goals that I have in my life is to be like you, John, in that you have a recording studio. First off, you have you have multiple houses, but at every house you have a recording studio and you have an airport so that you can fly wherever you want to go and you can record from wherever you are. And I think that that autonomy 
is just so liberating. It's just, it's wonderful just to think about. But you don't live right near Boston. So if Mariah Carey flies to Boston, people, you're, you used to tell me, like, I would tell people we're in Boston, but then they'd get in the limo and it was longer. What was that like when you'd get people like, you know, huge stars getting out of the limo, let's say, to your house and it's been 45 minutes instead of, you know, 10? Well, no, it's a half, it's a half hour drive. That's not that uncommon, though. Same with Detroit. I mean, it, it, a lot of places, it's 40-minute drive from the airport. Try to get from the Lincoln Tunnel anywhere, it's a half hour. In, in the city, I mean, no, it's... No, half hour is nothing. Fair But, when the, but right. you know, they brought them out. They wanted to, you know, expose their project and, and uh, get on the radio and be heard by millions of people. So, of course, they'll do it. <laughs> They're all publicity whores. <laughs> <laughs> right now, uh, what's what's been your primary focus, especially because we haven't talked to you in a year? So, can you kind of give us an update on what you've been working on? Um, yes, and your current successes. Yeah. Well, let's see. What am I doing? I I still own four radio stations on Cape Cod. Which last year we went through the the, the hell of COVID, shutting down all business. And when every business is shut down. They're not buying advertising, telling people to come on down and see our clothes sign. Sure, uh, yeah. So we had three or four months of no income, uh, followed by three or four months of very little income. And then it started slowly coming back. Um, fortunately, we did get the, the PPP loans that the government had, which they forgave. So that was very helpful. Um, and I think they did the right thing in doing that. Um and then this year we came back on a flourish and we're hitting the highest revenues we've ever had in the wow. past nine years of uh, running the radio station. So I'm running that. I have great people at the stations who do a great job, good managers. So I only get involved basically a couple of formal meetings every week and then a few phone calls during the week. Um, and I'm building up a new national radio night show called Liveline with an incredibly talented 20-year-old named Mason Kelter, who uh, grew up as a fan of my show. Uh, and he, could, he said, there's nothing on radio that interested me. It was all garbage. He said, until I heard your show. He said, that was, then I knew this was something. And he, I said, I, he said, I want to do that. So he's my protege, and he's doing a phenomenal job. And we're adding stations left and right in a tough environment because the radio companies have all consolidated and they're trying to create their own programming. But in the meantime, they've created these insipid, dull radio stations that are just driving people to the streaming services. Because if you want to listen to music and you're 20 years old, the last place you're going to go is the radio. If you're 15, you probably have never listened to radio except when you're in the car with mom or dad. Right. It's because there's nothing there for you. You go to Spotify on your phone, you get all the songs you want, and that's there's no entertainment on radio, nothing to make you excited, nothing to say, oh, I don't want to miss this, don't want to miss that. <laughs> I like this person. What we found with Liveline um, is we're getting all kinds of young people calling from you know, 12, 15, 20-year-olds, 20 25-year-olds. They're calling all the time, and, and they say this is the only time they listen to the radio is at night. 
That's amazing. I mean, I think this is something we also talked about in our prior episodes, uh, one and two, is the sort of the corporatization of radio and probably TV also, where it's, you know, everyone's trying to lump everything into one thing. And you've got several markets that have radically different audiences that are being lumped into one sort of corporate structure of, okay, here's going to be what we say. And here's our little plug that we're going to insert for this. And it just, it doesn't apply. And you're right. I mean, with people that have the choice to go to streaming services and listen to exactly what they want when they want and skip all the garbage in between, I mean, you have to and have the, something and else the nine to offer. Minutes, and the nine minutes of commercials you're, you're, they expect you to sit through. Right. Uh, hello. Yeah. So you, yeah, you absolutely. To, to have people be interested in radio, you have to have something to draw them in, personality, programming, all these things that you've been so great at. So it's it's great to hear that you're still doing it. Have you found that there's different things that you need now because – when you first started, obviously, like there weren't smartphones, there weren't so many distractions. You know, I was sitting with Paul Lorenzo earlier, and we were watching a video of some band in the '70s, and they were all just all the people in the crowd, like a whole huge giant, like eighty thousand person crowd, were just dancing. They had no phones, they weren't distracted by anything. There was nothing else. You know what I mean? And now, you know, radio, it's there's so many other things going, hey, pay attention to me. Alexa's yelling at me. My Roku's going off. My stove is going off. My refrigerator's talking to me. My, you know, what what do you need to keep people captivated now in radio? Is it the same formula? Basically, nothing changes but the date. You have really? to have something compelling that is immediate, that people feel a part of. And when you bond with people and entertain them, you create fans out of listeners. Listeners tolerate what they hear. Fans love what they hear. And you build an audience of people who are bonded to your radio station and your program because you're presenting things, contests, fun things. You hear other people. When you turn the radio on, you should feel like you're part of something big. You should feel like you're connected to others, which is what people want. Bob Pittman, who's the head of iHeartRadio, said it brilliantly, even though his stations basically mostly suck. Radio is a companionship medium. And companionship means you don't fill the talk places in the hour with slogans and download our app, and which is what they do now. It's just one big plug. And it's awful. Every time they talk, it's a reason not to listen, except in the biggest markets. In the top 10 markets, they've kind of let them do their own thing. But beyond that, it's just awful. And they're driving people away from radio into the streaming. Whole generations. Wow. Well, a lot of that applies. It's so interesting what you say. A lot of that applies to music and building a fan base also. You know, sure the does. difference between people that just kind of tolerate or passively listen versus the people that are true fans. And you do. I mean that onus is on bands and other groups too to create an environment or to create some sort of experience within the music, beyond the music, so that people can be engaged in multiple ways, you know? And it's, it's kind of changed how the industry has to work on the music side as well of like creating music. Right. I mean, you take fame is, and the bonding of fans isn't limited to music. It used to be the exclusive province of, of music. But I mean, the Kardashians, each one of them has a fan base of millions and millions of women who like want to see what they're doing next and they buy their cosmetics and their shoes and their this. And that's a fan base. And radio has the ability to do this 24 hours a day. And it just has abandoned it. 
for the most part. And we're trying to bring that back. And I think we're executing very well. Because it seems like it seems like such a battle um, just because of the corporate culture of like there, you know, you had the mindset of like, you know, and I worked in radio and I, I worked with salespeople. So I know, I know how they think of radio. And it's the, I remember the first thought I had when I worked with salespeople in radio was that's going to make that, it's going to make radio suck. Why would you do that? Right. The, right. I, I was in on the meetings where they're like, all right, we can fit actually two more ads in if we bump this like segment that was like entertain. Like if we get rid of that entertaining thing. We can fit two more ads in there. I was like, this is insanity. <laughs> Right. Close my mind. Well, let me ask you something, John. Based on what you said, it's very interesting because you said that success now is determined by how many seats you can sell, how many tickets you can sell. How no, I didn't like- quite say that. Your so, income, you make money from selling okay. seats, not from selling so, downloads or streams. Then same question, but a slightly different perspective. How do you feel like that's impacted the music that's become popular? So obviously, you know, the term pop, but, you know, Knowing that people want to make money, how do you see people have changed or modulated to make money knowing that that's how you do it? Well, the first thing is what I spoke of in our last uh, episode. Go watch it, 2020-D.com and the two before that. The answer is you see artists, major artists, jumping on other artists songs Mm -hmm, and that is to increase their exposure so they can sell more tickets they make money from tickets and merchandise not from selling music not from streams certainly not from cds i mean so you're saying like you know the band so so maybe the opening act for justin bieber that that they're trying justin bieber is riding the coattails or maybe some of the magic that that he may once have had with that but, but but they're opening for him and that and that's the single, and it's all a predetermined thing, just because. Well, that's maybe the easiest getting way. to be the opening act certainly helps. I mean, Sean Mendez uh, got his first major boost by being the opening act for Taylor Swift when she was at her peak. Um, right now, there's a song out by an artist from Australia named Kid Leroy. He's an 18 year old kid. He has a song called "Without You." And without you. And uh, now he has a new song out called Stay. And he does the song with Justin Bieber. And I looked at it, I went, Kid Leroy must be managed by Scooter Braun, who manages Justin Bieber. Look it up, sure enough. So Scooter Braun got Justin Bieber to be on Kid Leroy's second single, which is so important. If they have two hits, they become established, and then they start to become a semi-career artist. Well, what did it do for everybody? Well, for Kid Leroy, it got an immediate reaction. All the radio stations immediately added the song. Not because it was Kid Leroy, but because it was Kid Leroy with Justin Bieber. Mm-hmm. What did Justin Bieber get out of it, aside from a cut of maybe the revenues that they get from the song? What he got was, he's 28 years old now. He's going to start losing the 15-year-olds who are really into music. So he's with this 18-year-old kid, and it gives him an in with that market. So it opens his market up to the young audience that he once controlled. And Kid Leroy gets exposed to the Justin Bieber fans. The synergy is phenomenal. So now Kid Leroy goes out and opens for Justin Bieber. And, you know, there you go. Yeah. So that's how it works. It's funny. the the On the feature topic, uh, it seems like uh, seeing Travis Barker from Blink-182 is everywhere right now. And there's this whole new 
movement in pop, which is basically going back to pop punk from the early 2000s. It's it's huge right now. And everyone's got Travis Barker playing drums. And uh, and even, you know, even going back further, you had like Tommy Lee. He's still hopping on like he's like on a Post Malone track or something like these drummer. Like, (laughs) I don't know how much, uh, you know, who's getting more of a benefit from that stuff. But it, it definitely seems now that you point that out, there's a lot more features going on now than i recall over the last you know decade or so so i think you're ozzy osbourne post malone man yeah that that blew my fucking mind there you know the the industry is adapting to the fact that no one buys music and i think just like john said it's because they're kind of like it's almost like volleyball it's like all right now you catch and like throw it up there and it seems to be the current uh trend that's working for people at the moment right well on the streaming side you're on Spotify. You, you're a Justin Bieber fan. You see Justin Bieber with Kid Leroy. You go, oh, what's this? And you listen to it. You're a Kid Leroy fan. You see Kid Leroy with Justin Bieber. You go, oh, new boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the cross-pollination is phenomenal for both of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I so mean, there you go. All yeah. right. Well, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ben is I, try- I was just trying yeah. to be polite, guys. I have so many questions for John at all times. And okay, so I'll I'll tell you one of the questions I have, which has been brewing for like, you know, two years now. One time, John, um, I was at your house and you casually took out this like leather bound rolling stone. And you told me that you could buy like, I guess, you know, I don't know if it was a year's worth of rolling stones. Uh, 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 magazines from like the 70s all bound and then you continue to open it up to like a full page or maybe even two page feature on you in like 1970 something 72 Se- what <laughs> I'm sorry I guess my question is what the fuck <laughs> well that that was because I was program director of a station in Boston it was like the, the dregs of Boston radio. When I Was it a became... big deal back then in 1972 to be in Rolling Stone? Yeah, it was, well, it was a big deal then. It's, it's not a big deal, deal now. Oh, it isn't? No. No, is no, not... not now. No, no. But I mean, like, I'm, I'm trying to determine if it was like like 90s, you know, big. That was I mean, the peak of Rolling yeah, Stone. Yeah, because I mean, Rolling Stone in the 90s, like if you were on the front of Rolling Stone, like it literally meant you made it. Now, if you're on the front of Rolling Stone, it just means yeah. like cool. Any you're at the airport. Pre pre internet. Well, in the seventies, there was a song called "The Cover of Rolling yeah. Stone." On Columbia was who was the artist? I forget. It doesn't matter. Um, what was the question? Where were we talking? About you being in Rolling Stone. Oh How did that yeah, 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 Tell yeah. us the story. How, like seriously, that happened because I, I was I had created this battle with Doctor Hook. By the way, Doctor Hook. Doctor Hook. Yeah. Doctor Hook's medicine show. Yeah. There you go. And. Um, I was working at this radio station that was number 15 in the ratings. And we um, and I became program director. It's a long story how it happened. But within 90 days, we went from number 15 to number one in Boston. And the way we did it uh, was termed by a guy named John Landau, who at the time was a writer, and then he became the manager of Bruce Springsteen, um, the Boston Radio Wars. And and he thought this was great, and he set the thing up with Rolling Stone, uh, and they got a writer named uh, Stu, what was his name? He went on to an appeal of surprise with a book called The Boys on the Bus, which is the story about a presidential campaign. And um, that's how I got into Rolling Stone, and it was fun. And boy, the notoriety. 
but that's just an example of like going over to your house because I remember I was cleaning something up and I was in your garage and then there was a Woodstock poster and I was like, is this, is this like something you got as like, you know, a promo? And you're like, no, that's an actual Woodstock poster just in your garage. And I feel like your entire <laughs> house is just a, a, a museum that would normally just be a, a crazy collector hoarder like myself, but instead it's just your accolades. Just like one day in 1972, you're in Rolling Stone. Then you're like, ah, I decided in the 80s to do a television station, then a radio thing, did a movie special, and I made money this way. I have planes. Like, is it ever enough for you? Are you tired? No, and I've never tried to make money. I've never done anything to make money. I've done things because I believe in the money followed. But to me, making money is something that's very easy. I could make a lot of money. Well, but I made a lot of money, but it's not because I tried to make money. It's because <laughs> I right, did what Mitch I love. Hedberg, I'm, I used to make a lot of money. I still make a lot of money, but I used to too. No, but I think this is common among like truly creative people that are fired up by the projects that they have these ideas for is that you, you don't ever get tired of it. And the next thing just re-energizes you to do even more. I mean, it's, I can understand that. I, I, I find that people, yeah, Truly creative people end up with a lot of interests that might not be at all related, but they're all related to it's something that interests them at the time and they do it and they do it well. Yeah. And you have a vision of, okay, if this works, where is it going to lead to? And here's where I want to be. So, okay, how do I get there? And you kind of map it out informally and, and, and then just do it. And you well, have the usual roadblocks along the way and deal with them and, you know, you know. <laughs> well, speaking of unusual interests, as Benny referred to, you're a pilot also, and you like yeah. to fly planes. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into that or what, what got you onto planes to begin with? Yes, I was. I happened to bump into a woman I used to work with who was the secretary. I, I consulted this group of radio stations um, before I put my Boston station on the air and I happened to bump into this woman and, and she said, what are you doing now? I said, I own these radio stations, this radio station, blah, blah, blah. I said, what are you doing now? I said, well, I married this great guy and we opened a flight school at uh, Hopedale Airport. Hopedale is a little town in Massachusetts where uh, Joe Perry grew up. In fact, his mother was a school nurse. Um, she said, you ought to come down and learn to fly. And I said, Oh, and you ought to run ads on my radio station. Let's do a swap. I'll get you customers <laughs> and you teach me to fly. Because at the nice. time, I bought property in Vermont and I was driving up every Friday night with my buddies and then coming back on Sunday, building a cabin up there. And so she said, well, let me talk to Steve and da, da, da. And that's how it happened. And we did a deal and I learned to fly. And then I... Um, Ended up getting into, you know, into a big time. I had no particular interest in airplanes before that. I just thought it was some unattainable thing that, hmm. you know, it was hard to do. And, you know, it takes some work. But, again, it was, uh, it was a new, you know, notch on the handle of the gun. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So what, I've, what I've always wanted to take flying lessons, so I'm but, fascinated by that. Do it. Same but, here. Yeah. But I know at one point you had 16 planes. What about flying? What on I earth had, about flying? I had 23. Jeez Louise. <laughs> okay, so 23 planes. That's, I mean, look, I have like 170 guitars, but I got to feel like a 23 planes is even more than that as far as per capita. So like, what about flying and airplanes? Obviously, just, just I'm guessing the engineering of airplanes makes you so fascinated where, you, where you, you've become so enamored to do this. 
Well, I, I don't know. First of all, I have I have a house in Vermont, and I have a house on Cape Cod, and I have a house in Boston. To go from one to the other takes time. If I want to go from Boston to Vermont, that's a four-hour drive. If I want to go from Vermont to Cape Cod, that's like a five-and-a-half-hour drive. So having an airplane, is, it's a quick hop. That's number one. Number two, it's enjoyable. It's, uh, you know, you're up there, you're looking around, it's beautiful scenery, it's fun. It's a quick trip. Um, you can bring your friends along. I don't know. Have you had any scary moments flying a plane? Anything that was like freaked you out or danger? I don't know. That's that's what I always worry about. Well, there's an old saying about flying that uh, it's hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. <laughs> <laughs> And it's true. It's true. But um, no, I've never, you really don't get scared. You just, you know, deal with things. You don't, if you're smart, you avoid weather because weather will kill you. Somebody once said to me, what's what's the most important thing you've learned after flying for 40 years, which I have. And uh, I said, it's learning when not to go. That's the most important thing you learn. Well, just as, I mean, I've, I've always been fascinated with, with planes and flying. And I remember my dad used to take me up, you know, once a year, my birthday would go to the airport in Mansfield and uh, just hire someone to take us up and fly around. I always liked it. But, you know, you mentioned all the parts that I'm familiar with, which is, you know, flying's fun and it's beautiful, but uh, you seem to be somewhat of a collector as well. What is it about that aspect that you enjoy? You know, I'm a guy. I love machines. Yeah. Um, and the airplanes are all different. They all have different characteristics. They fly differently. <clears throat> Some of them are for different purposes. Um, some of them go real fast. Some of them don't, but they can land short. Mm-hmm. The runway I have at my place in Vermont is only 1300 feet long on top of a 2200 foot mountain. So <laughs> the air gets a little thinner up there. The, yeah. you know, you have to deal with it, but it's never been a problem. Well, I have a very important question because getting back to the blink 182 thing, not with Travis Barker, but with the other guy, um, he wrote a whole book. Uh, about aliens and that there's a bunch of UFO stuff. You fly a lot of planes. So are there really aliens? I've never seen anything. Um, <laughs> although I saw something in Vermont one night that was really, we didn't know what it was. It was kind of bizarre. It's this thing. But, I don't un- know. I, I, I can't imagine. It. Huh? <laughs> so it was unidentified? Oh, no, it wasn't identified. It was, you're in the middle of well, nowhere. I mean, and you but see this listen, I feel light. like now with Google and with how much there's like stuff out there, there's like just blatantly stuff that people are saying like, yeah, we don't know what that is. Like, do you think it's aliens or do you think that like people are just have crazy technology or drones or whatever? Because like the pyramids are weird. They are weird, but I don't think the period pyramids necessarily have anything to do with aliens. I think there probably are aliens. I think there probably are life forms that are humanoid-like out there somewhere. It's a big, 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 big world, big well, universe. statistically, Stephen Hawking says that there definitely is. Yeah, the odds are there have to be. I feel like the, the, the greatest sign of intelligent life is maybe they haven't tried to contact us. 
you always steer us in the most odd yeah. direction at the end well, of Well, no, episode. come on. Aliens, everyone wants to know about aliens. And I feel like if you've been flying for 40 years, you read about all these things and they have like, you know, the Air Force pilot. It's like, oh, no, we saw the, the fire in the sky. We saw these orbs just go by and they said, don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. And, but you hear like these stories. Like, I mean, ever since I, I was a kid, like I you'd go like read these books and there'd be like a whole thing about UFOs. Yeah. Like, I, I'm just really curious because at this point, I feel like back in like the the 90s if you said do you believe in aliens i'd be like i feel like that's stupid and now i'm like that makes total sense the answer is nobody knows yeah <laughs> are you sure the government doesn't know i feel like nobody, no nobody knows nobody knows why do you say that so confidently because nobody knows Okay. Who would know All that? Right. Unless well, you encountered them. That was the best defense ever. Yes. There's a book. One of the first. I grew up in the 50s when flying saucers were a thing. It was a big thing. And there was a, a couple named Barney and Betty. I forget their last name. They were driving from Canada down through the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And they were abducted. And you can Google it. It'll, Betty and Barney. Uh, abduction and you'll get all these things and tell will tell the story there's a book about it i think there's a movie about it and they describe what happened they were taken aboard this craft and blah 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 and these are two very uh you know credible people they're dead now but you know, not from flying we'll saucer yeah <laughs> well yes this i, I uh, listen, the guy from uh, from Blink-182 has a 600-page book that apparently is like the definitive book on the, the the proof of UFOs. So that's why I was just curious. But I feel like I see it all the time in my Google. As you know, because Google <laughs> listens to me. So because I'm talking about it now, I'll just see tons of UFO stuff. We need to find days. a way to zoom in on the reflection of Ben's glasses to see what he's really looking at on the internet during our episodes. It's just cats. <laughs> just cat videos <laughs> just cat videos yes uh, as as usual we've steered the conversation into a wall but fortunately there's only a couple minutes left here so we can uh, <laughs> yeah, so we'll be able to release you <laughs> we don't need no education Corey <laughs> <laughs> John thank you again for for indulging us for another <laughs> couple hours I'm sure uh, it's fun very busy schedule I'm glad you enjoy it because we had a great time and it's, it's always great thank to hear you. your stories and we have some great conversations, so it's always a pleasure to have well, you. Well, I the the thing is too is that you're the only person on the show so far that can casually like list off accolades, even more like happenstance than Shannon Larkin because he goes through when we had him on our show. He's coming actually on tomorrow. Um, he like he, he goes through his last record and he has four number one hits on. He goes, that was a oh wait a minute that was a number one. He goes, and that one was a number one. And he does this four separate times. He's like wait, we've never. Had four number ones, it was in the, and the album was number one. And like he, like he, he goes through this all in his head. But I feel like every time I go to your house, I'll see, like again, see something, and it's like, oh yeah, it was just in Rolling Stone, no big deal. Oh yeah, no, you can download the doc on uh, on Amazon Prime. What? And then you'll be like, oh yeah, no, this is just me and Vanilla Ice. Actually, that's one of the things I I have to ask you this because you have a million pictures, all right, a million pictures at your house, and most of them are, are of your friends, and you have tons in your book. But the one famous celebrity photo you have on the wall that I see all the time is Vanilla Ice. Why? Why Vanilla Ice? Why Rob Van Winkle? Well, he's there with fifty other people. I, it's not, <laughs> I don't have an, I, I, you know, a, 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 
a, a mosque with, <laughs> You're you know. making it sound like a, yeah, shrine. No, but I'm saying, but you have all the, no, you literally have like a tessellation of different friends, but then you do have your one celebrity photo because you have a ton of celebrity photos. I mean, you've met, it's, it's unbelievable. Like the people I could just name, I could name drop everybody like Lionel Richie, you know what I mean? Boys to men and like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and Christina Aguilera and Bruno Mars and, you know, Rihanna and everybody, but it's vanilla ice on the wall. Why that picture? You have Marky Mark and still Vanilla Ice. Yeah, well, it's it's a picture. It's a cool picture. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I think he should have won a Grammy. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Good enough reason for me. So John, I just want to say thank you so much for being on 2020, and also for always being our our friend. And this is yeah. a good time because I sent you the Lost Symphony video for My Last Goodbye because I yes. actually just got. Just everybody, so you know, yep. I got chapter three, which is out now. Yep. Um, and out we, now? we Lost sent John the, the, my, the My Last Goodbye video. And John, look, this is not... The video I, was spectacular. I said, who produced it? He said, Corey. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad, uh, Brilliantly done. Really, really well you. done. Appreciate that. And it goes out to our friend Ollie Herbert, yep. who, um, you know, John was, was my friend when I was going through a lot of the emotional side of that. So I, I appreciate, um, you know, John, you being there. And then now you get to see the the artistic side of it, um, you know, come out years later. So no, the playing, the playing was great. I recommend it to everybody. Check it out. Well, thank, thank you. you. Lots but how come your name isn't on the uh, jacket? It's Benny. Who? Oh, Benny? Yeah. No, my name, it's, it's, it, it says produced by Benny Goodman. Oh, it does. Oh, okay. And Siobhan's on there because I saw her in the video. You, did, did we send, didn't we send you a copy? Yes. Good. Good. No, yeah, look, he sent me the link. He sent me the link. Oh, well, we're... Because well, I don't have a CD player. Oh, he might be talking about the video. Well, well, well we're definitely going to send you a copy of the vinyl um, so you can at least have it so you can read the, the liner notes and all that because I know you appreciate that. So we'll make sure that gets off to you. So thank you so much, John. Um, we very much appreciate it. And I actually, we thank you in the record. So, oh. um, but, and I think, I guess the last thing I'll ask you before you leave is, so a lot of kids now are buying records, vinyl records. And, and I think this is one of the first years that vinyl records have surpassed CDs as you've made fun of so eloquently. Why do you think people are buying vinyl now as opposed to um, before? Is it a, a sound thing? Is it because of the art? Is it because it's bigger? They need something physical? Why? Because it's got a cool factor to it. That's all. That's it. It's a cool factor. It's a collectible. A lot of people still collect postage stamps. Mm -hmm. it, you know, there's something about it that's collectible. And sure. vinyl is collectible. Uh, to old people, it sounds different because it's smoother. Vinyl records. Well, our vinyl is limited edition, and you can get it uh, signed by us, and it's a limited edition uh Purp, uh, blue vinyl, blue, uh, marble. blue marble vinyl. Yep. So uh, if you want the blue marble vinyl signed by everybody, and I love Kelly because our guitarist Kelly Caroluck, um, <laughs> it, 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 he 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 signs it Kelly K, and every, I feel like Randy Rhodes, like the same things, like all these great guitar players, like sign their name, like they were just in like cursive class, and like you see all like my signatures, nothing. Uh, Paul has this weird, like, art artsy signature. Corey has the fast one. Javon clearly is famous and just does this a lot. And then all of a sudden, there's just Kelly K. As if, like, <laughs> it he, is very pristine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's hilarious. So you could get that on CD or record. The first 
thousand are signed. So we're assuming we might even sell a thousand. So that's great. <laughs> Lawsymphony.com. Check it out. <laughs> and once again, thank you, John. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank for you. everyone, go back and check My out his earlier Siobhan. two episodes. Such a pleasure to talk to you as always, and we appreciate your time and your knowledge. And John, I want to let you know that you're on notice that first off, we need to go out for dinner because Cindy uh, misses This has nothing you. to do with the show. No, <laughs> so no, we can, no we, can, we can end the and, show now. And, and two, that you should uh, come over and do some radio stuff because that'll be fun. We'll do it. You've been <laughs> 2020. Right, ladies and gentlemen, Corey. you've been 2020. Thank you for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 35, featuring founding member of Extreme, Paul Geary. Check it out. You know, because even as a local band, we took ourselves very seriously. So, like, you know, in the arenas back then, they used to have these platforms and stuff on stage, these metal, like, we would build them out of wood. Um, and put them in trucks and show up at the clubs and actually have like platforms and risers that we just did it ourselves because to us, we were just like, we were an arena band playing clubs and we wanted to present ourselves that way. So that's what we did. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like Chicago's. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.